Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Sir Ridley Scott is a director of unparalleled scale and scope, the creator of cinematic worlds from outer space to ancient Rome, from the Napoleonic Wars to the dystopia of Blade Runner. Welcome UK. to your life in pictures. <laughs> now, unusually for a life in pictures, we're actually going to start with some of your advertising work because you have made no fewer than how many commercials? You, you lose count, but roughly about 2,000, I think. But the company over the years has made a lot more because many directors all contribute. But I think it's harder to make that many commercials today because in those days it was the infancy of television advertising. So I could do three a week, which is fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested because obviously you were, you were at the Royal College of Art uh, where there wasn't film training as such. No. But once, once you went into making commercials, I mean, there are, you know, there are seven, Alan Parker and Hugh Hudson, I mean, Who? you... <laughs> so, Is he here? <laughs> so you came, you came out of that. I mean, was there very much a sense, they're so sophisticated, those commercials, from, even from that yeah. early age, and they're so, they're so cinematic. Yeah. Was there a sense, did you have a sense, do you think, collectively, that it was time to make advertising, to bring into people's homes some of the values of cinema? Well, the big company then was Charles, James Garrett, mm. and he had a very good guy in there called Dick Lester. Anybody remember who that was? Uh, Beatles, Hard Day's mm. Night, uh, the best of the Three Musketeers. He was a very good filmmaker, was also a good commercial director. His sleekness, and that's a compliment, the way he made movies applied to commercials. So I noticed him, and then, uh, because it was really infancy, of course, anything that's new, everybody wants to make it creative, and it was very creative. And so I think there was, without you know, putting anyone's nose out of joint, I think it was some of the best copywriting then. Alan Parker was probably the most successful copywriter in England at 19. So don't believe me about this socialist stuff. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually... <laughs> a, a born on the cobbles. Sure, Alan, yeah. <laughs> so, th so there was that, that sense. I mean, you were making, I mean, you were making a, a number of commercials a week, even. Yeah, well, it was, uh, it was a brand new... Feel. You know, I related to... Related to you know, there was a, there's been a digital explosion here into all of digital media and social network and all that kind of thing. Started quite suddenly. I mean, really kicking in, Netflix really kicking in, talking about the last two years. Um, then the gradual growth of digital data, I'm sure some people will disagree with me, probably slid in on a fast ramp less than over eight years. Um, and therefore the, the, the world of the digital empires were far, far wealthier and greater than we were as commercial advertising. But commercial advertising in those days suddenly, I'll give an example of BBC, uh, I'll talk about money. BBC, I was earning 75 pounds a week after tax for taking care of a live show called Softly Softly. Mm. One day somebody said, you wanna do a commercial? I said, yeah. So I went, snuck down there in BBC time so I was working, you know, moonlighting. At the end of the day, I got paid 100 pounds. So I thought, there's something seriously wrong here. So I went into advertising. <laughs> but it, it was that idea that you could make it as big and as cinematic, even if people were going to see it on a small screen. To be honest, it's mm -hmm. never on paper. It's a script 
It's a piece of paper, and then I take it and I interpret mm -hmm. it. And so if you're a director in this room, it's all about interpretation. And you can take it, make it as small, as big as you want. And I was blessed with having been to two very good art schools, so I can, you know, really draw. And so I would work, I would film on paper. So I'd sit there by myself, working what I can do with this single sheet. <clears throat> and uh, I wanted to have, to ring the bell on 1984, I wanted to have the whole audience would be people in there sitting there with shaved heads. And because I couldn't afford, afford there's no visual effects in any of these films, by the way, because they didn't exist. So the real jet is eight feet off the ground. So these kids, I figured there's a bunch of guys in you who are at National Front. So <laughs> all that lot of National Front, which I gave them breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they were as good as gold. You know, and you only remember that thing, so when this hammer hits that screen, I want you to go, Wah. and they did. So, no. <laughs> But at that stage, I mean, were you, you were obviously thinking about, well, you were still making adverts um, by the time you'd made The Duelists, your first well, feature film. you can tell there's a punch and impact and power. Mm. I knew I had that impact and punch, um, partly because I was a designer, I could draw, and therefore I was blessed with a good eye. I'm blessed with an eye. And therefore I could see the film before it got made. So by the time I decided 38D, which I haven't made a film yet, so I started to evolve something, which I managed, was national, was, uh, what do you call it? Public domain. Mm. Uh, Joseph Conrad had a short story called The Duelist. It was going to be his sketch for his large book that he's going to do about the Napoleonic era. And um, so he got that, secured it. By then, I could afford to pay for a screenwriter. So I got it written. And then I took it to David Putnam, now Lord Putnam, to help me out. And we made the movie. Making the movie at the end of it was very enjoyable and dead easy. Um, and so I wanted to go again. And uh, uh, Putnam was a great guiding person for me through the whole process. I think David's probably one of the best producers I've ever worked with. Yeah. But presumably because you'd made these advertising films that you knew about deadlines and budgets and all of those things that oh, sometimes sorry. people find very difficult with their first feature. Yeah, I mean, when you do commercials and you have your own office by then, because we're in London and New York by then, um, I know that on that second hand is a dollar sign or a, a sterling <laughs> sign. And as you go over, it's your, your, it's your problem. <laughs> so once you're past six o'clock with an agency, it's all in your hands, dude. So it's up to you to get through on time and make sure the agency are happy, will walk away with a view to coming back for more later. That's a key, because that's how I kept so busy, because I was pretty well on time, pretty good with that. I, it was a learning curve. I wasn't initially, my brother Tony was a disaster. He'd go out at 3 o'clock in the morning. I used to have to turn up and say, what are you doing? Um, but I learned from you know, speed, budgeting, speed, budgeting, film. Film school never teaches that. You've got a budget, you better get in there on time, otherwise you're going to get replaced. That's it. So with the duelists, the, the, the story that, goes, that runs through the Napoleonic Wars, I mean, it's quite a long time frame, but much of the story is told through the landscape, isn't it? Yeah, well, the, uh, I chose a place in France. There was no tax rebate then. So we chose a, that whole film's done for about $800,000. You'll see a bit of it in a minute. Uh, uh, the 
place I looked at was a place in the Dordogne called the Sala. When you go into France in those days, they would say, you want to make a movie? You've got to go to the mairie. He says, is sex film? No. Rigi Bardot? No. <laughs> Michael Wiener? No. Okay. So then, <laughs> seriously, so they read it on the Friday. On sun, Monday morning, I had to go to the mayor. He said, but this is remarkable. This, these two men, Dupont, uh, Founier, and Ferro, and Wood. He said, these are two, two local men who lived in Salah. So he showed me the records that these two guys had started off as equal ranking in the Napoleonic army. And if one moved above the rank above the other, he couldn't challenge them to a duel until they'd equalized. So that took him through this story of craziness right through where at the end of the film, they couldn't actually remember what the original argument was about, which to me was a marvelous metaphor for war. Because it is a story that, that unfolds each time they meet. You know, each of the fights reveals so much about character as well, doesn't yes. it? Well, the character, I'd originally cast um, Michael York and Oliver Reed, both are great swordsmen, right? Now Oliver's gone, but Ollie was a great swordsman, and so is Michael York. If you remember Zephyr Ali's, uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, oh, uh, Michael plays Banquo. Is that right? No. <laughs> Not in Romeo and Juliet. Come on, guys. Jeez. Um, <laughs> um, and he's a great swordsman. And, uh, and I was playing Michael as the bad guy. I also thought Michael actually was playing the bad guy more often. And Ollie, ironically, was going to play the good guy. So it won't matter now because it's too long ago. So I went to Paramount and they said, no, no, no. If you've got three guys here, you get two of these three, it'll give you 800,000. So I had to go out like a hitman. And the top of this was Harvey Keitel. And there's Keith Carradine, there's a third one, I can't remember which. And I went and met Harvey in New York, who had read the script, said, come in. And he said, you've got to be kidding me. You want me to play Hazard? What are you out of your bloody mind? And I then went in New York for three weeks to get him. I kept going at him, and he finally gave in. Mm-hmm. Keith was already in for the start. But to play two Americans as two French Hazards was definitely... You know, t- 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 you know, testing the, the water, but I think it worked very well. It worked ex- extremely well. It was very well regarded critically. It wasn't a huge commercial success, though. I mean, was that... Was that... Seven theatres. They opened seven yeah. theatres in America. And, um, uh, but it won a, the, gra- the ju- Grand Jury Prize at Cannes. Yeah. And uh, uh, now, to mention a name that will be very unpopular, had Harvey Weinstein been at that point, he would have known what to do with small films because Harvey, whatever else Harvey is, was very good at actually taking small subjects and really knowing how to market them. He had a great eye for that. So Paramount had forgotten I'd made the movie. So when I arrived in LA, I was staying in this cheap hotel, called him up and said, um, who? I said, Ridley Scott, uh, with what? In mine, I said, well, the duelist? And I said, what? And I heard a lot of this whispering <laughs> in the background. And I heard it. Yeah. And he said, really? How are you? They'd forgotten we made it. They'd actually forgotten we made it. <laughs> so that was my introduction to Hollywood. <laughs> and, and, but from then on, you then wanted to do something, you know, I mean, did you have particular ideas about how you wanted to go after that? No, I was ironically 
really glutton for punishment, I was going to go and make Tristan the salt. Because mm -hmm. uh, talk about going from the sublime to the ridiculous, because in those days, people just don't want to see that kind of thing. And yet I did. I'd watch all of Bergman's, all of Kurosawa. And the film I remember was a great film by Bresson, uh, Bunuel or Bresson, called Lancelot du Lac. That's Bresson. No? Bresson. Jesus Christ. Okay, right. Um, Lancelot du Lac, which is actually a pretty good version of Tristan the Salt. Or, you, you know, and um, I was going to do that. And David said, um, there's a film running at the Chinese on Saturday. It's opening night, opening day. Do you want to go and see it? I've got some seats downstairs a bit near the front. There's this film that this guy called George Lucas has made. So I go in the Chinese, and of course, it's Star Wars. And I sit there, and I've never felt such audience participation. This theater was positively rumbling. And I sat thinking, what am I doing going off to make another art film? I better get into the real business. So I decided not to make it. And I think David was a bit pissed off because he thought I was going to know. And uh, after, ironically, after six weeks, I could go back to commercials. Thank God for commercial. And after six weeks, I suddenly got a script on my desk called Alien. Now, the rest is kind of history. Mm. So. But to what extent were you with your art background involved in the whole look of Alien right from the start. Are you yeah. kidding? Yeah. <laughs> totally, darling. Because um, <laughs> um, the, uh, the power of a storyboard, I went and met Laddie, and Laddie said 4.2. I said, mm, I had no idea, because I just quadrupled my budget and, and, and on the duelist, so I went, wow, that's a lot of money. So, and he, here's another key. When you go into Hollywood, if you ever go into Hollywood, don't sit in a room and come with a bunch of notes about the screenplay. That's fatal. You'll turn a gold film into a development deal. Then it will just gradually water down and disappear out the window. So I went there, and I'm savvy enough to say, and he comes back, nope, fantastic. And he going, nope. You wanna, I just can't wait to do it. So I was on board in about 22 hours. I went back to London and sat for the next three weeks waiting for contracts and God knows what. And I storyboarded the film, which I still have today. It's about this thick. And uh, I took the boards back to LA, and the budget went from 4.2 to 8.5. That's the punch and power of the storyboard. It's all there, everything. And um, so I always board, always board, always board. And I used to hand boards out to, there were some very skilled storyboard guys, but. I spent so much time, what I want, frankly, I may as well draw it myself, so now I've decided to draw it myself. It's faster. So a board like Black Hawk Down is this thick. And you do a little bit of each time. I'm, I'm a great sketch when I'm on the telephone and I'm drawing boards. So gradually the boards build like that. And so uh, I've already shot the film in my head on paper before I get there. So when I'm on set, I don't even have a script. I just say, right, camera, there's four cameras, one, two, three, four. And you've got to know the geometry to know where it's going to be useful. But that said, because of that, I've got, I need the best cameraman. Don't make no mistake, I need great cameraman. Mm. And you already knew some of the, I mean, did, through the advertising world, had you that oh, yeah. work? Yeah. Derek Van Lint was the first on Alien. Imagine that was the first. And Frank Tidy was a Rostrum cameraman on the doors. Mm. Yeah. But he, dis he discovered in commercials, I used to use Frank a lot of commercials, did almost 200 commercials with Frank. I've torn a commercial with Derek. And Frank had discovered from America this North Light, 
because when I was at BBC and I did a couple of shows for BBC as a director, and they would always have these lights everywhere, the inky dinks and God knows what everywhere else. And you sit in a room, and the room was always brighter than the exterior. It always looked completely unreal. So when I started doing commercials, I sat one lunchtime, said lunch, and as the lights went off, I went, stop, stop right there. Cameron, Arthur Ibbotson, anyone remember Arthur Ibbotson? No, Jesus. Um, Arthur Ibbotson came in. I said, listen, that's how I want to light this room. He said, but if I do that, it'll never televise. I said, I'll take the risk on that. And that's where it began. I, I kind of invented a new look at, at a television commercial level that suddenly became kind of beautiful and real. Not The best of the best at that point was Keith Hewitt with cone lights and top soft lights that he learned from Irving Penn. Mm. I'm talking about people you never even heard of, right? Mm, okay. But the, these are major people. Irving, anyone know who Irving Penn was? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. You buy that little cigarette and an ashtray is now worth a million dollars. Photograph, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> that was the economy. There was no walking shots because we didn't have that set to do that. And I discovered, I fell in love with an old TV, well, in those days, the pixel monitor. I figured if Ash, the in home, is watching the monitor, I didn't realize, of course, monitors in those days will be 14K and will not have lines. But I thought the lines were great because my model was only four feet across. My landscape was pretty bad. So I took a small camera and then walked through the hills of this big, walked around and put the model at the back, and then took that footage and transposed it onto a TV screen, filmed the TV screen, and cut it in. So that makes for a cheap walk, OK? And, <laughs> And I just utilized all the dialogue the actors had inside their helmets, because we hadn't quite worked out how not to suffocate in those helmets at that point. So <laughs> half of them were suffocating. So, so it worked great, still works. So when you go from that outside cut to the silence in the corridor, then you know you're really in trouble. Mm. But it is, I mean, it's a very early example of using that kind of mixed media yeah. thing, which of course has been imitated over and over again. And, yeah. and so much, I mean, Goldsmith's score, really scary space, brilliant. as opposed to futuristic, yeah. exciting space. Yeah, he's also. brilliant. And Jerry was, I, I, did, I did two with Jerry. Um, Jerry did the original Planet of the Apes and lots of great stuff. But then he did for me Alien, and then he did, uh, thing I did with a legend, 20-year-old Tom Cruise. And it was kind of a fairy story. And he did the score for that, which he did exactly what I wanted. But the film was seen as a bit too sweet. It was a fairy story. In fact, it was 27 years too soon, because Beauty and the Beast right now is what I just did then. So um, I, to Jerry, I said, Jerry, dude, this, your score is a bit sweet for the United States. He used to go brick red. He said, what do you mean? So uh, he'd go brick red, and he had a shock of white hair, so it made it somehow the brick red even worse. So, oh no. Then I said, he said, so he's going to destroy us for the United States. So I said, well, you know, there's this band called Tangerine Dream. It was a bit like, was it Margaret Rose that said, a handbag? Okay. He said, Tangerine Dream? And so I went into Berlin and did Tangerine Dream, all the music in three weeks. So uh, ironically, they both worked. But Jerry's was the one that was really designed. Mm. And I mean, and the other thing I suppose about Alien was that the fact that the the whole feel of the Nostromo of, of the ship yeah. 
uh, and of the crew being kind of, they were workers, they weren't sort of space elite, were they? And all of that was all completely fresh and new. Yeah, well, if you can classify Sigourney as a worker, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, yes, in fact, we decided to go the counterpoint to Star Wars, which I thought Lucas's first Star Wars was absolutely seminal, blew me away. But in a funny kind of way, he had done a great space fairy story with the darkness of Darth Vader. It was a great thing to do. And the princess and the prince and all that stuff, and the wild man who's Harrison Ford. We were truck drivers in space, fundamentally. And off that, I had Yafet Koto and Harry Dean Stanton, who were like a double act below decks. And they, they give it that working class problem, which I thought they were pretty funny. So were you tempted to stay with that kind of, if you like, genre after Alien? Sorry? Were you tempted to stay with kind of <laughs> space, action, mystery, whatever, no, after Alien? No, uh, I was going to, yeah, I was going to do, um, uh, off Alien, I was going to do Dune. Mm. So I sat with Dune, a good writer called Rudy Wurlitzer. We did a good script, I think, with Dino De Laurentiis. And then... Um, Something happened in my life. I, I lost my elder brother at that point, and uh, that completely threw me into a loop. And so I went into the spin for a bit, and then dropped Dune, which Dino was very graceful about. And I waited until, I'd, when I was mixing Alien, Michael Dealey had come to me with a script called Blade Runner, actually called Do Andro's Dream Electric Sheep. And then I went back to Michael saying, oh, that small film grew in my mind because Hampton Fancher had written a very nice play, a three-act version of a hunter and a quarry. And the quarry, he'd, who was an android, had taken, was kept in his apartment, and, and it's a bit like the Stockholm Syndrome. She had fallen in love with him, he'd fallen in love with her, but it never actually evolved outside the apartment. So. I met Hampton, loved Hampton, and from that, I've never spent so much time. I think I spent four months, five months, six months, every day with Hampton and Michael uh, evolving. Because I said, if they can make, we can't call them androids, we can't call them robots, you've got to think of something else. You can't call it the title, you've got to think of something else. And um, uh, gradually, we gradually found the title. But the evolution was, if you're proposing a world that has such high technical capability of creating human beings, I want to see what the outside looks like. So when he goes out that door, I want to go with him. So it went boom, like that. So I was applied my, my design thing, got a great guy called Sid Mead, and a production designer, a very nice man called Larry Paul, and we start to really evolve the city. And I, the next problem is, where do I do it? So I even flew to Hong Kong. Couldn't afford to do it. I would have done it in Hong Kong in a heartbeat. Couldn't do it in Hong Kong. Um, couldn't afford to. Uh, there was a city in France which is modern, but which they'd done something there before it was not right. I ended up in the back lot. What, it was then the was Columbia Warner back lot at that point. So we built the set. We only went out the studio once downtown LA on the Million Dollar Theatre area where I used the Bradbury building. That was about it. But, I mean, that has lasted incredibly well in terms of... Sure has. Is. But I got um, murdered at the time, absolutely killed. And in my office in LA, 
I have a framed original four-page article by Pauline Kael. Anybody remember Pauline Kael? Yeah. <laughs> Who devastated the film in four pages. Uh, I never met her. Never even met her. So I read this New Yorker kind of posh magazine, and holy God, it even got personal. And from that moment, I never ever read my own press after that. But I, I framed the article and always kept it, saying how wrong it can be, darling. <laughs> well, quite. I mean, especially in a year when, uh, when we've seen... Uh, well. Yeah, well, I was right after all. <laughs> Expensive at the time, she nearly killed the movie, really. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't survive for almost, um, let me see, it's 30 years. Uh, didn't su it's, it survived only by accident by coming out of a box where they, there were one or two fans and there was a Santa Monica Film Festival wanted to run Blade Runner in the festival. So they called up Warners, and I'm sure one will forgive me for this any from Warners in here, they'd lost the bloody negative. Oh. And so I go, what? <laughs> and uh, so somebody in the head ripped this cut out of a drawer, shipped it down to um, Santa Monica. They ran it. It was a cutting copy with a bit of Jerry Goldsmith's music on and a little bit of um, Van Gelder, so I just started to work with. And we previewed. This was a preview print. Can you believe it? And out of it, with no voiceover, none of that silly nonsense flying into the mountains at the end. <laughs> It should, it was a film noir. So in those days, they'd say, what the, is a film noir? I said, well, it's a kind of French film. He said, we don't want that. And so we've got to find out a good place for them to end up in the mountains or something like that. So I had to put the mountain sequence in. And uh, it, it, when you think about that, it makes no sense. Why do you live in that city if they've got mountains yeah, like that? You do that. But, <laughs> so. <laughs> so like, duh. And so I'm now dealing with a lot of durs, I'm telling you, right? And my favorite word is now duh. Like, duh. duh. And people get really offended. <laughs> Gee whiz. Okay. Well, we're get the, the next bit we're going to see is it's actually going on quite a long way, but so different um, from Alien and indeed from Blade Runner, which we're going towards Thelma and Louise, yeah. which is 1991. Now, here you're taking on the big American road movie, but you're changing it in, in the first obvious way yep. is that it's two women. Yep. But in terms of the landscape, in terms of the way that you're shooting it, I mean, what did you have in mind there? Well, I'm a camera operator, so I sh operate all of these, okay? So Alien was all one camera, Jules is all one camera. Thelma Louise is one camera. Uh, I didn't start multi-camera till we, the idea of video has just become very sophisticated. So in my tent now, I'll, if I've got six cameras, I'll have six monitors. I mean, not like this, like that. So I can sit there and literally cut the, the scene as I'm shooting it. Um, and that's how you can do Covenant in 72 days as opposed to 172 days. Covenant in 72 days. And what was your question? Brain's gone. <laughs> actually, it was actually about it was about the landscape because the, the oh. clip we're going to see is really big. We're going to see you know well, big vistas. In 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 short, it to me I read it as an odyssey, mm. and I read it as a comedy. And Callie said, "Comedy? This is serious." And I said, "But if I do it serious, which I could easily make it serious, you're going to cut off half your audience." 
half the men in America will hate this movie, right? Because they're not ready for it yet. If I make it comedic, everyone's going to kind of enjoy it more and forgive the righteousness of the females. Because I've never had a problem with, I've done a lot of films with women who are the lead, Sigoni, these two, the gals. Uh, the people forget about G.I. Jane. She did all of that herself, and those one-arm push-ups are real, dude. You need your one-arm push-up. No. And so, and then every, I always cast very strong fear. Michelle Williams mm. is a girl, a woman against Getty, and, and so on and so forth. And, but the casting of, of these two, of um, this, you know, this particular combination of, of yes. two actors, how, how much time do you take over casting? Do you have a particular way of doing it? Or? I was going to produce it. Because um, mm -hmm. it was sent to me in my office then and uh, through outside from Cali. I don't know whether it's true or not, but Cali, I think, was... Sorry, David, David Fincher, sorry. But she was the receptionist of David Fincher's office. And I think on, on every morning, David would walk through and she'd say, David, I have a script. And he'd go, yeah, yeah, later. <laughs> and one morning she said, David, I got my film picked up. And he went, with who? He said, really? So I went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> So, sorry. Uh, so, and by the way, I think Finch is brilliant, so I, I can afford to tell jokes about that. Uh, it may not be true, but I was told that afterwards. But you have to make an odyssey splendid. So it had to be magnificent and splendid because, in essence, it was the last journey. And you're heading towards that last journey. And you mm -hmm. cannot let that car explode. You've got to let, freeze it where it was because it's a continuation of what they want because their alternative would have been prison or the electric chair. But that, that kind of chemistry that you can see between Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon, just in those, those driving shots. I mean, how did you have to try a lot of actors before you come up with that? No. Um, I saw, uh, I was going to produce it, and um, uh, so I interviewed directors. Most of the directors said I got a problem with the women. So that's the whole point of the script, dude. And so I was then interviewing one day Michelle Pfeiffer, who was too busy. She said, I don't want to meet anyone. And then she said at the end of the meeting, she said, well, why, why don't you come to your senses and you do it? And sure. So I went, what did the? And that's what I did. I just did the film. And Gina had been pursuing this role. She knew it was there. She knew it was for her. And uh, I met with Gina. I was absolutely charmed by Gina. Um, and then once I had Gina, then getting Susan was pretty straightforward. And the rest followed through. Gina suggested Chris, who was the guy standing his pizza, said, she said, who's my husband going to be? I said, well, I don't know. She said, you've got to meet this guy. You love him. So I met him. He had me in fits of laughter right through the whole meeting. She was going to marry him. And a week before the wedding, he just, she just couldn't do it. That was almost two years prior. So he was absolutely mortified when I called him and said, hey, Gina wants to do the film. He went, really? <laughs> but he did it. <laughs> of course. And that's Harvey Keitel again. Yeah, no, no. The half the problem with Chris getting through scenes with Harvey, where Harvey wouldn't stop breaking down with laughter. He said, I'm sorry, 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 this guy's got to stop looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to move towards talking about Black Hawk Down, um, but before we do, I mean, I'd, I wonder, 
when you describe the kind of the detail and the control you have, and actually you sitting in your tent looking at the, at the various monitors, I always have this idea of you as some kind of, um, you know, so you're marshalling some great military operation, and uh, you like all of that, don't you? I mean, you like yeah. having hundreds of people. Well, no, to... no. It evo I mean, <clears throat> I'm very budget conscious. So I only want whoever I need there. But when you do Black Hawk, if I didn't have 11 cameras, I'd still be shooting. <laughs> so, and that's Kingdom of Heaven, there'd be six cameras, I'd still be shooting if I didn't do that. Yes. So they're big, they're big, huge cameras. When you build Jerusalem, or you're going on Black Hawk, you're taking over a village called Saleh, and you're employing 2,000 locals every day, dressing them, feeding them, etc. So you're, and I've got uh, three, four Black Hawks and four Nightbirds. I've got 125 rangers in there as insurance for the birds. And I have to ask the king of Morocco to write to the Pentagon to invite them in so there's no upheaval in all the Arab states saying, what are you doing bringing Americans mm -hmm. in here? So we had to do all that before we get there. So by the time I arrived, the, the encampment for the extras, which could be 2,000, would be 400 nylon tents. And there'd be breakfast areas and, and breakfast, lunch, dinner. And so your unit on that would be 500,000. Um, so, so five, five uh, yeah, five, five thousand, mm -hmm. uh, no, five hundred people, five hundred, and then on Kingdom it'd be almost eight hundred people. And and that you see, some people would find that so worrying, you know, the scale of all that. Um, you evolve, you you get there. I learned early on. I mean, I used to worry, get all my worrying out when commercials, because it was my wallet. So I'd walk in there really prepared, knowing what I had to get to, and allow for the discussion with the agencies throughout the day. Would, you know, if the if the agency was complying with what you want, like lightning, if you got a tricky copyright, it could go on all day. You wouldn't shoot till two o'clock. So I want to shoot myself and him by lunchtime. So when I do a film, I'm shooting by eight forty-five in the morning. You better be, otherwise you're never going to catch up. Mm. I'm like a a Sergeant Major, first AD and crew, and um, we are the best, the best. So have you worked with the same kind of, on the whole? I, I try to keep it, that's why, because I tend to do almost one year, I've just counted up, I did, in 17 years I've done 15 films. Mm. So over the 40, 35 years, heading for the 30th movie, but there's almost 200 productions and television, things like that. And so th that only works if you've got great people with you. Yeah. And so yeah, you, sorry. you were producing on, on Thelma and Louise, and from then onwards, I mean, you've done a lot of producing too. I mean, how do you decide between the ones you're going to direct and the ones you're going to produce? Well, you learned very on, you don't rarely, you rarely get a script lands on just like Alien. And everything after that was fundamentally not that great, or sometimes, you know, marginal. And so I realized I got a development deal with a studio fairly early on. So I was always evolving and developing material. Big films and small films. Did a teeny film called Matchstick Men with, with uh, the gentleman last night who got his best award for three billboards. And uh, uh, with him and Nick Cage. And that to me, the ideal thing for me to do is a big film while I'm in post. I'm already planning a small one. When I'm mixing and finishing the big one, I'm already planning the next big one. 
<laughs> it's, all, it's not as difficult as it sounds. Well, <laughs> I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is, actually. Now, you say when you're doing the storyboards and, and even when you're, when you're watching filming and you're watching on the monitors, you're, you're editing. When it comes to a sequence like that or something where pace is really important, yeah. um, presumably still in the edit, you're going back and looking at oh, it yeah. again. Yeah. I mean, I need great people around me. I mean, everything I do, I'm putting the pressure on all of them. So the point of reliance, I can see I've got a very good, the best costume designer in the business sitting right down there, Janet Yates. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I need them to say, I'll, I'll, I'll have the meetings and we'll be planning and evolving, it's all evolving. Bring them in quite early and therefore that said, I also need great editors. Because when I function, I've learned over the years, do you sit in the editing room, this is a good, point. If you sit in the editing room every night with the editor, you'll drive each other crazy. Because if you've planned it properly, you should deliver your, 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 fil your film, your, your material, see rushes by all means, whatever he or she have got in process, say, what do you got? What are you cutting today? Can I see it? And they show you, keep your distance. Because watching a film is like nine lives of a cat. Every time you see it, it's like telling the joke once, Twice it's still funny, third time less funny, fourth time you start unpicking it, by nine you realize you think you're fucked up. Okay, <laughs> so you can't do that. So I now uh, shoot, turn up, see the rushes, uh, see what's in hand for the day, leave it. So by the time I get to the end of the movie and we wrap, I see a director's cut within about or well, the editor's cut, really, but kind of my cut as well, within about two weeks as opposed to six, seven weeks, two months. Um, and so I'm looking at that, and I keep my distance, because when I run it, I'm in a room with, I never even write anything down, because if you write something down, you put your head down, you're missing the energy of the film. So I usually have an assistant, and I'll just go there, 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 there. And, and at the end of it, they will have notes that they'll put down and they'll say, there was a scene, the footage turned out, and they'll say, oh yeah. And so you'll talk and the editor will sit in there. So I become the most valuable asset of the editor who then listens to what I think and we can then have a discussion about it or even a debate about whether I'm right or wrong. And at the end of it, you come together like that. And then your next screening is when he gets all that down and then you look at it again. Don't sit in the editing room. And the same thing goes for mix. Never sit in the mixing theater. When they've mixed a scene or mixed a reel, they'll call you, go and listen to it. Because if you sit in the room, it'll just get louder and louder and louder. Because your ear closes down and you think, is it not loud? Is it loud enough? And you, you and when I walk in that, oh, stay fresh. Good tip. And do you believe in test screenings? I am pathologically against any test screenings. And, uh, <laughs> and because I've had two test screenings that were massive openings, Hannibal Lecter hadn't been done for 10 years. And <clears throat> I did um, called Hannibal. And I read the book, and I think my lawyer at the time said, are you kidding? You can't do a film where somebody cuts the top of his head and feeds him his own fucking brain. And I said, watch this space. So, we did, and he fed Ray Liotta to his brain. So, <clears throat> so I, thought was, I thought it was darkly 
very purple operatic tale of Hannibal Lecter. In Florence, you can't beat that. <clears throat> um, and uh, I've lost the point, what was the question? Test screening. Test screening. So I said, no test screening. We wouldn't test screen. We had a February, two-day, non-holiday, $52 million opening weekend. Jodie should have done the movie, <laughs> dude. So then um, the next one was Black Hawk Down. I wouldn't test it. And that was a $54 million opening weekend. And most of the people who went were women. And I don't think it was just to watch the guys. I think it was what was happening in America at the time, because they'd just blown down the Twin Towers. Mm. So Joe Roth said to me, I was in New York, I can smell the, what the, you know, what's left of the Twin Towers. It's in the air. <clears throat> Joe Roth said to me, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I think we should run the film. We'll run the film. I think we ran the film in February as well. Mm. We were shocked at the reaction. Because it's showing what these guys are doing for us. So um, when it came to around to Gladiator and the idea of the sort of sword and sandals epic, I mean, which people had thought was actually long buried. A lot, lot of tittering. A lot of tittering. Riz's going to do sword and sandal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Beavers and butthead. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why would he do that? Because I knew what to do. Because the... Um, Walter Parks, who was running DreamWorks at the time, he said, listen, okay, I think I've got something for you. Will you come and see me? So I went and saw him. He said, let me read the script. And he said, nah, it's not a good script. He said, but it's about this. And he had a beautiful reproduction, quite big, and he unrolled it on the desk. And it was a great painter, a 1920s French painter, or was it late 19th century? called G Jérôme, Jérôme, and he rolled it out, and it was an almost photographic, beautiful painting, which I think the big original painting is in, in Texas somewhere, in some big museum, and it's entitled For Those About to Die. And what you see is the section of the um, arena in Rome with a guy who's leaning over the thumb down, who's clearly probably Nero, his blackened face and... He looks apoplectic. And on the ground, there's a slave who'd been fighting an Antibati, who was partly armored warrior. The guy's got a tuna fork, which will kill you. The fork's like that. And he netted him, and he was looking up for permission to kill. And I went, I'll do it. And Walter said, really? I'll do it. And from that moment, we, we, did, we just did it. But of course, it was also at that moment where suddenly you were able to have the computer rendering of enormous space. Well, yeah, yeah, you have a, suddenly, uh, a, I knew exactly what to do, because I, I could suddenly see what it could be. Roman armies could be normal, like in f France in the mud, or in Germany in the mud, and in armor in mud, catapults like the Bofors guns in First World War. So I so saw all those trenches like the First World War, and that's how it started to evolve, and all those German Hooligans were guys from Glasgow University. When that guy <laughs> is saying, Hoot, no, no, Hoot, man, he's not, he's Scottish, he's not German. <laughs> but it, it, did, it did mean, obviously, that you could put, you know, you could have great big forum, you could have thousands and thousands of Romans cheering and all of those things. I mean, was that a slightly, was that ever worry? Also, it gave you the capacity to do it, but the fact that you, you, it was getting to the stage where you could almost do anything with computers, was that? Yeah, well, worry. it's the first time I worked with a company called MPC. Mm. And uh, MPC, uh, I think it's the first 
maybe they did a bit on Blackhawk. Because when the, the only thing on Blackhawk, all that flying stuff is all live. That's real. All those guys are sitting on the plane, landing in the high street. That's real. Um, oh, the actors are just strapped on the outside. I just said, don't fall, okay? <laughs> so that Eric Bynum's sitting there going right across the scene. Um, yeah, so it's... Um, yeah, so then it changes. That when, you get to, when you get to Gladiator, suddenly you have got... Yeah, uh, the, um, it, I can only afford... There's an arithmetic. If you've got more than 400 people in the morning, you're already getting a gentry. You're already getting that free a.m., 4 o'clock in the morning, to dress them to be ready for by 5, by, by, by 8 or 9. So there's a point of having more than 400 to dress. Uh, you'll never get ready. So now MPC can tile. So I, for instance, there's a big shot where I, there's a pan like that, like that, and that's digitally recorded and memorized. So then I'll put... I start tiling the crowds. So I've got 500 guys here, do a shot, pan across, move them across. And if you see what I'm doing, I'm just like tiling the bathroom with troops, okay? <laughs> and so the end of it, you've got 15,000 troops. But Same all... in the arena in Rome, and sorry, in um, Malta, on a daily basis, I'd have maybe 1,000 Maltese, because chucking on you know, robes like that and no real makeup, standing them up on the, on the gods is easy. So you could have more people, chuck them up then, move them out and tile them. Section by section, you, re, you, real, you reshoot it with a recorded digital memory. But I mean, that, is, that is an example of how you're using what at that stage are kind of, you know, very state-of-the-art cameras and bringing quite a contemporary feel to the sword and sandal. Yeah. Fight, yeah. as it were. There. Well, real. It's all real. If you get it real, it's chances it's going to be strong. That was probably about eight cameras, that whole thing. Because once you set that look going, you place your cameras and your camera crews and your tracks in areas that, even if they get seen or glimpsed, you can remove them digitally. And not only that, you dress your camera crew in insignificant clothing, even Roman gear. I'd put an operator with a helmet on, seriously, because I saw him, I don't ruin the shot cost me 70 grand to take his napper out, uh, I, I just stick a helmet on him. <laughs> and are you fascinated by, you know, the, the possible innovations in technology and all that? Do, I mean, do you find out about stuff all the time? Yeah, I mean, you have to, you, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. The, I, I took a while to grasp, I, I was one of the last, I think myself and Stephen was the last one to use celluloid. He didn't want to leave, leave celluloid, and I always like, I'll never go to digital, I'll never go to digital. And suddenly, I'll never go back to celluloid, ever. <laughs> because once you get a print, now you've got 10, 15,000 theaters. You know, when you're grading, it was a nightmare because when you're doing runs in, a, in the lab bath, if it went in early in the morning, by the time you did it in the afternoon, the bath was a bit not quite right, it'd overused, and therefore, it would affect the print. So you had to check on a run of thousands, had to check about every hundredth print. You've got to check it to make sure you're there. Digitally, just press a button and it's all the same. But with the, the whole question of, of what you can do with computers now and what you can do in terms of sort of virtual... Sorry? With the whole question of, of computers and computer-generated images, yeah. is it ever tempting? I mean, is there ever... Because, because anything is possible, pretty much now. Yeah. Um, I wish there was a computer that wrote great, great screenplays. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, that, that is the problem. That is the so hardest much, single yeah. thing to do. If I get it written, the making the movie, movie is dead easy, really. Um, well, it's enjoyable, and when it's really big, it's kind of challenging. So you're looking at your semantics, you're looking at your plan, and what, you know what you're going to cope with on a daily basis. But then it's really enjoyable. When it's not on paper, it's a nightmare. Mm. Nightmare. And a lot of you'd be amazed how many films start without being f ready. That's where they go: twenty, thirty, sixty million dollars over budget. So, do you know when you start to read a screenplay? I mean, what is, what is the thing that makes the handful of ones that you find interesting enough to want to pursue? You know, you get used to spotting writers. Um, I can tell in half a page who, if I'm in good hands. Usually it begins with when the writer, any writers in the room, yeah. <laughs> you know, watch what you call your characters, because I can switch off, you call somebody Rodney, it's definitely a put down. <laughs> so it, the names are very important. So a name I go, hmm. And then I'm in half a paragraph, I'm going, mm-hmm. If I'm getting to page 20, I begin to perspire because I'm, I'm hoping he does not or she does not drop the ball. So when you're getting right through, I think, holy moly, this could be it. And then page 70, they drop the ball and never recover. <laughs> oh, man. And so then I then decided to climb in and advise and help and resurrect what was the great idea. Writing is the most powerful thing in the business. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I can write, but not like the writers I can hire. And besides, for me to write a script is a waste of my year when I can actually delegate having things, two or three things written for me um, with better writers than I. So why did you return or want to return to Alien? Because obviously other people had taken it on after the first one. Well, I've always got an eye on the, the home run. And um, yeah. <laughs> Um, and uh, I realized that I should not have stepped out of sequels because I was asked to do um, sequels before and I said, no, 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 no. And uh, I should have done more sequels. So I think because I literally created Alien, um, I think after four plus Alien vs. Predator, it was kind of put to bed. And I thought, what a pity because the old Beast has more in him, or the the dilemma of having such a creature, where it should evolve, um, is still there. It's wide open. That's why it's what's been remarkable. Not so much Star Wars, you know, and I'm not the biggest fan of this thing, but I take my hat off to the remarkable staying power of Star Trek. Unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, I remember watching, as a kid, black and white versions with. What's his name, the guy who was Captain Kirk then? He's still alive, still around. Not William Shatner. Yeah, who? William Shatner. William yeah, William Shatner. Shatner. Mm. And, it, and then, even when I was watching TV in Stockton on Tees, when I was at art school, I think, who's that guy? And uh, it was William Shatner who's making the most of a very bad set and terrible tights. And the show was, <laughs> show was fantastic. And uh, so Star was the same thing. So I thought, Alien really should have the same element of franchise. So. I came back in with saying we can find a new beginning with Prometheus and then later we'll follow it on with Covenant because you should be going off to a new world now. When you do Prometheus, I said, I think the old beast is tired. And what we learned out of Prometheus, we did from ground zero to where it got to, it was 
really good because we made that for like 103 million, not 203. It was a good price. And so we did very, very well to justify going again. But the report was, and now I start, if I'm going to get into this as the business, I'm going to start taking, paying attention to, to the report of what is missing. And they said, well, why didn't it do 600? Did me a 450. It's pretty good. You work it out. Um, and uh, uh, why didn't it do 6800? Because it didn't have the alien in there and the chest burst and all those familiar things. And I felt it was kind of worn out. So we came back in with Covenant and did this, in, reinvested in that process. We did well, but not as well as Prometheus. So I think you're already evolving into the next evolution of where you go without the alien. You've got to invent another form of alien. So is it an AI called David Fassbinder, see? Because there's a lot behind it that where you can go into this new world of where they're going to. And I think the great thing about, um, I did a meeting last week with NASA and JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, because I did Matt Martian. And uh, so I got to know them very, very well. And they were talking alien 30 years ago. I was in the planetarium where we were running the film as a kind of premiere. There's a guy, anyone remember who Carl Sagan was? Yeah. Yeah. So Carl Sagan was there with a glass champagne. Said, uh, yes, totally ridiculous, of course. You'll never see aliens in my lifetime or yours. And I said, lighten up, Carl, it's only a movie. So he went, oh, yeah, of course. So, um, now we know there are many elements out there, entities out there with probable, almost certain life form, millions of them. And they've just discovered four which are almost exactly replicas of Earth. Fortunately, they're about, I don't know, I think about 20 light years away, so it's unlikely we'll ever see that. But uh, they exist, for sure. Mm -hmm. for sure. You're fascinated by AI, are you generally? Well, uh, I think, as you think about it over the time, I mean, I'm not, I'm agnostic. <clears throat> I'm not religious uh, in that sense. But I think there's a logic, because I always felt if you look at the universe, you go outside, it's entirely ridiculous to believe that we are it. That's such an arrogance, it's ludicrous. And therefore, it's almost bound to be that outside we are. I think Hawkins said, for sure, he said, hopefully they won't visit us before we visit them. Because if they visit us, they are way, way ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And therefore, for us to try and retaliate on any level would be completely ludicrous, okay? So, I think that said, I think we'll, and I think Stanley Kubrick came up with a great idea, which I completely believe is kind of accurate. Um, in 2001, he had a monolith with this big black thing spinning through space, which if you like, was kind of like the entity of knowledge. And so one morning he's invested in this little water hole where in the middle of God knows where, and there's a few animals around the fight over the water and squabble. And one morning, an ape or a chimpanzee wakes up and sees this black monolith, touches it. By touching it, he is invested in the first big idea. Because the next thing he picks up a human, a, a thigh bone of an animal that they've eaten and beats the crap out of an anteater. So he uses it as a weapon first, then throws it in the end. You've got the best cut in history to the future. And um, so I always think that and you look back over the years and think about how many people, you know, this much of his words, he's a genius. 
I said, people in America say he's a genius. He's awesome. I said, no, slow down. <laughs> Mozart was a genius. He still played every hour of the day globally today, Mozart. Bach follows, then Leonardo da Vinci, then maybe, maybe Picasso, but I, I start to hesitate on that one. So then I go back and think that um, Preandertal, Preandertal walking around, it's about, just about up on all fours, got enough to have a family, clearly, and the, the wife and the children, the litter. So now he's standing in a wilderness, and he's sheltering because there's, there's this apocalyptic storm that we would not, you know, ever experience today. He sees a lightning bolt strikes the tree. The tree collapses and falls on a deer that's sheltering beneath it, killing the deer. The deer is burnt by the burning branch. Yandel smells meat, goes over, touches burning meat, goes ow, and licks his lip, his, his finger, and meat tastes good, cooked. When it cools off, picks up the burning branch and the, the deer, carries it back to the cave. In the cave now, you have warmth, and you have the family now feed on a cooked deer. After dinner, here's the big one. After dinner, he takes a piece of charcoal, because in the side of this white limestone cave, which had no fire before, it's beautiful white. On the wall, he starts to draw what he saw today. Have you ever seen the drawings? I've seen some of the last They're movies. shocking. Picasso saw them and went, they've done everything. And the drawings are a shocking representation of memory and art. So suddenly you have art. What provoked that Neanderthal to pick that up and what gave the capability of drawing that on the wall? So I think people get gifted. Gifted? Am I sounding crazy? They get gifted. I think Mozart was special. What quirk of birth, and now Mozart wrote, wrote his first concerto, was he six? six yeah. So he's way ahead of us, dude, right? Well, so I think people get, I think there, there are gifts that are handed out by human what? We're going to rush on now quickly because we are running somewhat out of time, but we're going to go on to, if you like, the other side of space, which is the very sort of practical side, which is Matt Damon, on Mars, keeping it very real, even though it's just that bit ahead of what sure. we can imagine. 2021, they'll be doing this. So we've got, yeah, we are, we, we'll have time for a few questions just in a moment, but I, I think you want to show a little clip of your yeah. very last film as yeah. well. Well, last yeah. film so far, yeah. though you're obviously already preparing for the next one. just run it, yeah. Um, <laughs> so this is All the Money in the World, where, of course, you had to yeah. make a cast change yep. at the very last moment. Yep. Um, I have heard from somebody that actually you just swung into amazing, when you knew you had to do this, you had to replace Kevin Spacey, that actually you swung into action and seemed almost to be relishing the challenge. I mean, that sort of thing would yeah. really depress most people. But. It took me 20 minutes to... Um, <laughs> well, you know, I was a bit uh, pissed, actually, that uh, Kevin at least had said, listen, dude, I'm sorry about this, but that's the way it is. Mm. And I'd have said, fine, but then I'm going to replace you. Instead, I haven't heard from him or anybody representing since that point. So I give him 20 minutes, and then I said, I can get uh, other man. If I fly to New York tonight, meet with him, I'm convinced I can get him. So once I had him and we knew the dates of the locations were available, everyone was available, we were shooting in nine days. 
So the biggest thing, really the biggest challenge was for our guy to learn 22 scenes, and, which he did. And uh, I absolutely was thrilled to work with him. I've always admired him. I've never found a role that actually was right for him or that when he was available. But he, he's one of the greats. He is, he's ter oh, terrific, he isn't he? Is, but, yeah. but I mean, just, the, just working out how it was practical to do that. You know, it's not, it's, I, I can make it sound really difficult, but it's not. If, <laughs> you know, if you've got a professional team like mine, I said, right, are you there? You're available Tuesday, we're shooting Tuesday, okay. And so everyone goes, woof. And it, all the engine starts, and I've got a very good man looking after me called Mark Hoffman, who rallies the troops in a big wave gets on a veil, availabilities, and their locations are going to be available first, ironically. Yeah. And Lord Salisbury wouldn't be go let me go into his house until such and such day, so I had to put it off till then. And then the, all the other actors had to be available. They just happened to be, thank God. And we went back and just picked it up, nine scenes. And then as I was shooting them today, I can shoot in location, sort of feeding it the editing room in London. Mm. And that's all possible because... Yeah. OK, let's see the clip from All the Money in the World, please. Huh. <laughs> good day. Glad to hear that, Mr. Getty. It'll make this much easier. We need to pay the ransom. I thought you said this was a hoax. Your grandson was kidnapped by members of the Calabres and Dragata. Two of the original kidnappers are dead. One is missing. That sounds like progress to me. I'm afraid not, right? They got nervous waiting for the ransom. They sold the boy to an investor. An investor? Who invests in kidnapped children? Well, you'll be surprised. There's nothing people can't find a way to turn it to money. You told me that Paul and his mother had cooked this up to soak me. And I was wrong. Right, Paul may have talked about being kidnapped with his friends. He put it out there. He's not behind this. How do I know that you're not wrong now? These people are not the old world Malavita anymore. Their only code is profit and loss. They will do things to Paul that cannot be undone for any amount of money. We have to pay. Well, this simply isn't possible, my Financial position has changed. Really? I mean, 30 seconds ago, you said it was a good day. I mean, I'm not all that bright, but I can multiply as well as you. With oil up as much as it was this morning, you have amassed another fortune. Well, what if the embargo is lifted and oil were to crash? I'd be exposed. I have never been more vulnerable financially than I am right now. Mr. Kenny, with all due respect, nobody has ever been richer than you are at this moment. I have no money spare. What would it take? I mean, what would it take for you to feel secure? More. Mm -hmm. That looked a little soft. Was that a bit soft? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was a bit soft. Bit. Shouldn't, yeah. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, time for some questions from the audience, please. We've got a some roving microphones, I think. There's one roving down there and another one there. And there's a hand up straight away here. Thank you. And there's one in the, the middle at the back. OK, go. Hi, Ridley. Um, one of the things I like about you a lot is that you're very straight. You're straight talking you know, in Hollywood, no, no nonsense. Kind of remind me a bit of like the Miles Davis of filmmaking, just straight in. And I just wondered, do you, even now when you've been talking to us, you've been t teaching you know, kind of how to do this, how to do a screening. Do you have mentor, mentees and people that you, you mentor? I know Iran Creevy and other people, and how do you, um, as a producer and director, um, get No, uh, I think uh, you gradually, not really, um, because in the days I wanted to 
get started as a director, I didn't know how. In those days, there'd be, the film would run with all the credits at the front. Right. And I'd look at that thinking, art director, okay, I can probably do art, because I'm at art school, so I'm going to head towards art director. A director, I had no idea what they did, how they got there. There was no evolution, there was no Beaconsfield at that point. In the Royal College of Art, there was no film school. But the film school started the year, two years after I left. So it was find your own way. I went to Royal College, which I thought was going to be the great learning curve. But when I got there, I just found 400% competition. And when I got in there, fundamentally, they're not going to like this, but it's true. I wasn't taught anything there. I was on my, you're thrown in the deep end with a lot of really good people. So maybe that was the intention, because then you would look around at the, the you know, the competition, you, you better survive. So it was a learning of what the world's really about at that point. Yeah. And, but do you, in turn, do you actually have, you know, do you mentor? I mean, no, film, I would live in the National Film Theatre, because in those days I'd have a student ticket and you could take it in a bottle of beer and a backpack and go one. And I would actually sit and watch all the Ingmar Bergen films, all the uh, Kurosawa movies, everything came out. I was living in, is that the South Bank? Yeah. yeah. And it was excellent. I lived in there. Fantastic. Bag of Christmas beer. And what do you think, when you see younger people come along now, and what do you think about the sort of level of training they're getting? Oh, well, there are a lot of them now. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone thinks that the job's going to be jolly good fun, nightclubs and champagne, stuff like that. It's not true. Um, I spent more day, hours writing scripts till 3 a.m. where I, I was holding down the main job at BBC as a designer. I was doing commercials moonlighting, which was illegal. And at night, I was going back home and writing till 3, 4 a.m. on screenplays. If you're not prepared to do that, forget it. Mm. So there's no excuse today. You've got a digital camera. You've got buddies. You don't have to have it developed. You can edit in camera, go out and make a movie this weekend, or stop moaning. Seriously. Okay. <laughs> okay. Does that sound really Hello? conceited? No. No, it was inspiring. You're an inspiring filmmaker. I just wondered, uh, you've been working with Tom Hardy recently, and you cast him in Black Hole Down very early. I wondered what you saw in him, and uh, was he ever considered for Kingdom of Heaven as the lead? Um, yeah, no, uh, Tom, uh, when I met Tom, I think Tom used to do a bit of rapping. Mm. And uh, I met him because Black Hole Down was a very interesting casting thing because all the guys, there's no big specific role. So, you know, asking guys to do it like Orlando Bloom and Tom, and Tom was brand new. So Orlando Bloom was already, I think, rolling quite well in... Um, uh, Lord of the Rings and things like that. Mm. Um, so Tom, I put him with you and Bremner. So I thought you would kind of look after him because those are the two Laurel and Hardy characters that got lost. Literally, they got left behind. And that, so those two guys are actually part of the actual story. Two got left behind. So they had to make their way back to the main pack uh, through in that particular place, Mogadishu. And so uh, they became a kind of amusing relief in the whole story, but I noticed Tom always made the right decisions. He had great intuition as an actor, so I fully expected him to surface. surface. I watched him surface gradually 
in very high-end BBC in particular, he played in a Dickens show that really put him on the map. Um, it did, was that Oliver Twist? What was he doing? It was a, it, it, he was playing uh, any, one of the Dickin, Dickensian uh, tough guys. Um, and so I figured he, he, would, he would definitely get that. The show with him, I'm pro jointly producing the show Taboo with him because his dad came in with the idea, wrote a very good four-page uh, piece on saying what it was. And so Tom sweetly brought it to me and said, take a look. And so we made the first series last year. I think we're doing the next one this year in September. So I'd work with him in a flash, but he's never available. It's part of the thing is finding time when I'm available and he's available. But definitely he's probably the one of the finest actors we've got. Okay, hand up here and one down here as well. One, one, okay, you go first. Thanks so much for this evening. It's so inspiring listening to you talk. You strike me as someone with really extraordinary passions and visions that have driven you for much of your career. And I was very interested just very briefly to hear a bit about you as a child and as a young teenager and what really inspired you when you were much younger? You know, what, what drove you? Um, well, it's a bit of a repeat last night. I had to do the speech last night. <laughs> so it's a bit of repetition on that. But because, uh, you know, every time you do a speech, it's like tricky. You don't want to repeat yourself. But I was a product of an army kid who did uh, 10 schools. So I was not very good at school because the parents in those did, didn't worry about getting, got to get the kids in early to school, you know, or got to get the right school. My parents didn't have time to think about that because we were, I was a pre-war baby, and uh, I, 1947, I went to Germany on a troop ship called the Empire Harlowville. So I was, had a label and a gas mask and a, a, a little coat and stuff and stood on the rail. And I, we sailed past, with, I was with troops, we sailed past the uh, Heligoland that we'd blown up the day before. So they're all submarine barracks, submarine pens, and that they had a lot of Germans living inside them. And so they couldn't get at them, so they just blew it up. And we, I was in Germany for 1947, 1952. But because I was 10 schools, I was so backward. When I came back to England, I avoided, could never have got the 11 plus. So I went to a secondary modern school, and I was. Um, bottom of the class throughout the four and a half year period at school. I knew I wasn't stupid, but I felt stupid and my father was always very supportive. So I went to art school instead. I could really draw. So and what's interesting then the educational system would not allow it today. For me to go to art school today I'd have to have five or six subjects. What do I want Latin for in algebra to go to art school is ridiculous. So I had I had one thing I got into Hartlepool Art College which was art. I could draw much better than norm. And so I went in there four years. By the time you have four years at art school, from that I got into every school in London. I got Royal College, Academy, Slade, everything. So I chose Royal because Royal gave me a bigger program. I, I knew I struggled with fine art. Um, I figured I needed a, a more specific. Fine art being like a writer. You go into your studio every morning and you face what you did yesterday. So it's a constant process of readjustment, and it's psychology. And um, I, but I'm going in with art school, uh, with sorry, with advertising, photography, 
graphic design, gave me all these things I could get my hands on. And then I started just following my nose, just kept following my nose till one day I knew I was good at one thing because they opened up a television design, set design section in the graphic design department. I joined that and got a job at BBC. And from that, I was a nuisance as a designer because I spotted a lot of directors on BBC were bloody useless and don't actually ask me to build a set this size if I'm going to shoot in the corner because you're too nervous to do anything else. Right. And so they realized they gave me a production course. So I said, wow, okay. The production course is only a month. But in that month, you've got a phone. You can call up any actor you want. You can plan what you're going to do. At the end of that month, they're going to give you one studio, full airtime, six cameras. So lots of people were doing outside broadcasting, two-handers and things like that. And I was irresponsible and crazy enough to do a potted version of Paths of Glory. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked. Uh -huh. And uh, so I was the most unpopular person in the class, as you can imagine. Mm. And they offered me a show. So from that, I got a show. I got the crossover from Zcast uh, Z to Softly Softly. Okay. So follow your instincts. Be an animal. <laughs> Go be an animal, dude. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, hi. Um, um, Ridley, hi. Uh, Evor Powell. I, I worked with Ridley um, for the first 15 years. Who's that? Is it Evor? Yeah, it's Evor. Stand up, old boy. I, I'm, I'm here. I can still stand <laughs> Are up. Oh, you still got your hair? Yeah. Very oh, good. Um, no, I just wanted to tell a little story. I've got, I've got a lot of stories about Ridley, but his lawyers are slightly better and uh, more expensive than mine, and so I'm not going to tell the naughty ones. But there's one funny little story that kind of demonstrates, it just occurred to me, actually, as I was listening to, to, to Ridley, um, early in the days uh, before we'd actually made any films and we, we were, you know, thinking about all kinds of things and working towards that, remember Ronnie and Leo? Um, they, yeah, well, yeah well, we'd both read a writing. book called First Blood, Yes. And uh, this was before it was made, and I think it was it was talked about. I think I can't remember whether it was uh, some really well-known director. No, John Kelly. I called him. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I wasn't going to mention his name because yeah. I, I thought oh, no. I'd be naughty and uh, no, no, no. my lawyers. But anyway, we we said Ridley said let's call up Warner's and let's see if we can um, get the you know get them interested in the rights to it. So yeah. I, I said okay, right, right, fine. Are you going to call? He said no, no, I'm not going to call. You call. <laughs> so he sat in his office in Lexington Street. And here's the interesting thing. We got through to John Kelly. Through John, John. Yeah. I think it was John Kelly. Yeah. Today, you wouldn't even get beyond no. whatever it is, the broom cupboard. Yeah. So we got, we got to speak to him. And I said, look, look, I'm sitting, um, you know, I'm a producer working for Ridley Scott. He, uh, Ridley Scott, who's Ridley Scott? I said, well, he's actually arguably probably the best known commercials director in the world, etc. He works in New York, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he basically said, yeah, and I said, well, first blood, you know, we're really interested in, you know, Ridley's got an amazing reel and he's, you know, he's ready to make his first feature. Uh, sorry, sorry, advertising, did you say you worked in? No, 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 I'm afraid you don't understand. Advertising is separate from films, we don't blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So it's, that was the thing. So yeah. Ridley was basically turning apoplectic next to me and uh, that just demonstrates the attitude in those days, which has somewhat yeah. changed now. Anyway, so yeah. I'll... That's the first ever. That's great. Yeah. <laughs>
I mean, it, it's you who's been so instrumental, actually, in creating that change that people would never say that now. And now you've got directors queuing up to make adverts. So, you know, feature directors. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the feature film directors kind of occasionally drop in reverse and do a feature film because they've paid a huge amount of money to do a commercial. Mm. Yeah, in between. Well, look, uh, thank, we are pretty much out of time. I'm very sorry for those who haven't had a chance to ask a question, but thank you for your question. But most of all, Sir Ridley Scott, thank you for your life in pictures. Thank you. Thank you, dear.